Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The death of George Floyd has inspired a global wave of protest against racial injustice. Since protests began a few weeks ago, CEOs and business leaders have rushed to express sudden solidarity with Black Lives Matter, and the ethnic mix in business is under scrutiny as never before. Statistics reveal how the corporate world's record on race has been wanting. Over 13% of America's population is black, but less than 1% of Fortune's top 500 CEOs are. The economic fallout of the coronavirus has also hit African-Americans particularly hard. Black unemployment is persistently twice that of whites, and the black-white wage disparity has grown over the past 20 years. Now consumers and employees alike are demanding that this moment should mean more than PR statements eager to be on the right side of history while corporate leaders face difficult conversations and decisions about what their public commitments will mean in practice. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how can business be braver on race? My guest is Melody Hobson. Her career has defied expectations, from a tough childhood, the youngest of six in a single-parent household, to co-CEO of Aerial Investments, the first asset management firm in America with African-American ownership. In 2018, she also became vice chair of Starbucks, shortly after the company closed all its stores in America for racial bias training. Married to George Lucas, creator of Star Wars, the couple wed at Skywalker Ranch, and Prince performed on the big day. Melody Hobson, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. You are clearly a self-made success, youngest of six children growing up in straightened circumstances, now counting many famous names and many in what one might loosely call the financial and elite beyond that in your circle. It's a big success story. Boil it down for us. What do you credit as being your biggest motivator? It really starts with when I was a child and the financial insecurity that I felt during those early years. My husband always tells me that what happens to you as a child really sticks with you because you don't have any advanced reasoning skills. And so everything feels magnified. And that period still feels very magnified to me. And it was that period where I really became determined to have a different and a better life. And during that period, I was really desperate to understand money. And so I don't feel that it's an accident that I ended up working in the investment business. Because if I knew how it worked, I thought I wouldn't be in the situation where I would be evicted or a phone would get disconnected or a car repossessed and many of the things that happen to us on a regular basis. And tell us a bit about that, because it's a mixed story, isn't it? Your mother was clearly in many ways inspirational. She was an entrepreneur fixing up condominiums to rent and, and sell. She sounds like quite a life force. And yet at the same time, as you say, you ended up facing evictions. She was quite extravagant. She possibly wasn't the best ever financial planner. That 
could be a great strain to have around as well as obviously looking up to and loving your mother. Yeah, it's really interesting because I hadn't thought about it for a long time. And then I came up with this concept. My mother was extravagant, but we didn't have any money, which is a horrible thing. I mean, it really is. It's just not a good idea. And that wasn't because she wasn't hardworking and smart. She just didn't make always the best financial decisions. And that was imprinted upon me. And that really became something that I wanted to work to overcome. She worked extraordinarily hard. So my mom had this theory that you don't ever sleep past 6 a.m. Do you still get up at 6 a.m.? Oh, I skip way before six. So it's like six is lunchtime in my world. I literally use that quote that the military uses, the Marines in America. They say, we do more before 6 a.m. than most people do all day. That's what I feel like, but I've never been a Marine. To turn us towards our big topic of the day and the moment, and we're talking about how business can be braver on addressing racial inequality and injustice. Tell me a bit about the changes you've seen very personally in the time that you've been around business. It's interesting. It would be wonderful if I could say I've seen dramatic changes, but I haven't. And so if I just use my firm, Aerial Investments, as an example, we were the first minority-owned investment firm to ever start in the United States back in 1983. We're 37 years old. And a number of firms, really great firms, followed in our footsteps. And that's something to applaud. But when you look at firms growing to massive scale or where you've had giant successes, they've been very limited. And that's disappointing. And so I do think there are some reasons for that. I also look around the industry, the industry that I'm in, which is financial services, and I look at the big firms. And I can't point to a lot of senior leaders of color, African-American or Hispanic, that are in leadership positions. So while one might think there have been giant leaps, given the years since the Civil Rights Act and all of the things that have occurred in America, I think that it has been slow going. But I read a quote the other day that I think applies to right now. There are decades when nothing happens and weeks when decades happen. And I think we're in one of those periods where it's weeks where decades are happening right now. And therefore I'm very encouraged about the opportunities that are at hand. That quote's attributed to Lenin, who you might not want to let into your business, but I think we get that. <laughs> and, and it is Lenin. And, and it, it's interesting because I know that it's Lenin and people take issue with that, but I'm a capitalist. It doesn't mean that it wasn't a thoughtful comment. And tell me what you think corporate America should be doing. It always feels a bit odd to ask someone to boil this particular ocean, and just sort this one out, because this isn't the way it's going to be. But if it's to be more than PR statements, which I find in your inbox is probably not dissimilar, flying at me with sudden affinity with protest groups and great statements of now and this is the moment. Are you convinced by that or somewhat sceptical that it is the way the business is self-preserving and it will move into that kind of behavioural frame in order to protect itself? What do you think then happens? I think the problem that business has right now is that everyone's watching. Everyone's got a camera in their pocket and it can go viral anything at any moment. And so now I think corporate America is on notice. You can't just talk about issues. There must be action. And what I've been saying very clearly over the last uh, several weeks, talk is cheap. What can be done? I'm asking corporate America to uh, approach this as we do at the Black Corporate Directors Conference, which is a conference we started for Fortune 500 Black and Latino directors. All the major companies are represented. And our idea is to make sure the civil rights agenda is in the boardroom. And we talk about something very simple, the three Ps. So what I'm asking corporate America to do is count. I love the saying, math has no opinion. Get the facts. So the first P is people. 
count at the leadership level, the board, the executive leadership team, the C-suite, and then all the layers beneath it. Count what your diversity of your organization looks like by ethnicity. You're not allowed to roll everyone up into one number and say, here's our diverse group or here's our multicultural group. As I said to a white CEO this week, we don't describe ourselves as diverse or multicultural. If you ask me what I am, I say I'm black. The next thing we believe is that you should look at your purchasing. With whom do you do business? That is very important and making sure that everyone has an equal opportunity. There's this whole conversation about access to capital. We would argue access to customers are very important. And we want to make sure that the people that you do business with aren't the same people because of some relationship that stayed in place for 40 years. And there's a real opportunity to compete and have everyone be included. And last but not least is the third P is philanthropy. Now, here's where I think the tail is wagging the dog right now. Philanthropy is taking the lead. People are giving a lot of money. And I would hope that they wouldn't think that these donations absolve them of some of these other issues. Because to me, I want their house in order. Philanthropy is great. And it's important that civil rights organizations are considered and included and get an equitable allocation of the company's philanthropy. But it is not the solution. As a Black woman and as Black people, we want to send our own kids to school. The only way we can do that is if we have economic equality, not waiting for a donation from someone. And what's the right balance here of the role of government and the role of business or wider society? Because if everybody expects everyone else to take a lead, you could see that this could take some time. But business has a lot of other concerns. Business needs to be bipartisan in in a way that politics is increasingly less so. It can't only take with it on this charge, to slightly put a caricature on it, Democrat-leaning business circles. It has to reach beyond that. Am I right? I don't think this is partisan. I think this is about survival. So I've said this very publicly, that if you expect to be a 21st century company in this country and you're not diverse, you are committing corporate suicide. It is not a question of if you will die, it's a question of when. You cannot be successful as an organization without having diverse people around a table, diverse viewpoints, etc. We all know that implicitly. I love what Shonda Rhimes says. She rejects the notion of diversity, the great television mogul that she is. She says, because if you walk around any street in, let's just use London, let's use New York City, Chicago, Atlanta, LA, She says, you see people from all walks of life, all sexual orientations, persuasions, ethnicities, et cetera. Then we go up elevators into these towers and it becomes homogeneous. And she said, and the people start talking about diversity. She said, I want to call it normal because outside is normal and inside is what changes. And when you ask about who's responsible, it's not about taking a lead. It's about everyone having a role and understanding what that role is. One would argue 50 years ago with the Civil Rights Act, the U.S. government did take the lead, that Lyndon Johnson signed that act into law, which says you can't discriminate. And it's interesting because right now, what do you see when you look at television in America on the evening news? Black mayors. Black women mayors, black mayors in Atlanta, Chicago. That's because government said you can't discriminate. It was illegal. And they were first to hold themselves accountable. I don't want to suggest that, you know, all is solved because of that. But you've seen more leadership there initially than what we have in corporate America. Let's bring it back then to some of the decisions that you need to make in corporate America. Where do you stand on quotas, boardroom and other? And has your opinion changed? 
No. And I don't like the word quotas. I like the word target. I think quota makes people very nervous and uncomfortable. And I say targets. We have targets for everything in corporate America. As an investment manager, I have targets of what kind of return I expect and hope to generate for my investors versus our benchmarks. There are targets around earnings per share in boardrooms. I could go through a whole host of issues where there is a target. But for whatever reason, when we start to talk about targets and diversity, people think that it is forced and you're dealing with quotas. But you see, I'm confused about the targets and quotas idea because some of the targets that you laid out. If you didn't hit them, the economist and others could be saying, you know, this business is in trouble because it it didn't get its product launches right. It didn't hit its targets and profits. If you don't hit your, let's say, a target on representation, as you've described it, Melody, and at the same time, the rest of the business is doing fine, what am I supposed to think about that? Because it isn't quite so easy to put those two things together and come out with the metric overall. We're basing it on the overall makeup of the U.S. population. So if you have 5% of your population in your company at an executive level that is Black, you are underrepresented in terms of an underrepresented group. So it's very easy to benchmark. That's what I'm saying. And I think we have benchmarks for everything else. And then I do believe that you have to incent. We get what we incent in corporate America. And that is true all the time from the performance-based bonuses of CEOs to the bonuses tied to new client acquisition, whatever it might be. So if diversity is truly important, truly a part of a company's strategic agenda, there should be incentives for hitting targets. But then why not call them quotas? Because it sounds more like it's what you mean, even if you don't like the word. And when we had Ursula Burns, who you know, another prominent African-American businesswoman on the show, she told us she had changed her mind as it happened. And it was something that was quite surprising to me because I was more used to people coming on saying, well, I don't really want quotas. I'll have everything short of quotas. She said we are making insanely slow progress today. And she thought that quotas were now called for. Because the problem that I think we have with it is you get too much resistance from the majority community and majority leaders on that concept. So I want to create a path to success as opposed to having to argue a point of view, which I do not think gets us anywhere. Let's look, as you say, on the bigger picture here. Corporate America, different rhetoric from many of the protesters on the streets who've gone out there in outrage and anger at the killing of George Floyd and much that they think lies behind it and fuels that kind of of violence against ethnic minorities. So something like the slogan, defund the police, or something, if you like, comes from the hotter end of that debate. What's your response to that? Do you agree with it? I don't. I think that that's not realistic. And I go back to some of the earliest documents that were written by our founding fathers. And, you know, you want to be in a safe society. That's what we are objecting to as Black people, that we are in positions we are not safe with people who are supposedly there to protect us. I've never been one of these people who thinks that the way that you solve something is by erase the entire system. I don't think that works. I think reform is desperately needed, but I think you have to have, you know, if my house were being broken into, I'd like to call someone and have them come. And where would that leave difficult decisions for companies if they have activists and sometimes activists on their on their own teams and their own staff calling for changes? Microsoft is an example, uh, Satya Nadella being called on there to stop selling facial recognition technology to US police departments inter alia with potential there for conflict with what companies do and what they're being asked to do. I think that we're all having to understand this nuance and what will be expected of corporations on a going forward basis. 
will be much more difficult than what we have faced in the past. And some of that has come out of discussions, for example, that Larry Fink has had at BlackRock about the role of a corporation. I think that these issues will be on our doorstep no matter if we like them or not. And the simple example that I give to people is I said, you know, in a lot of corporations now, they have live shooter drills. You know, we didn't have those things a decade ago. That's a function of mental health issues in our country that have crept into offices and where companies have to be responsible. I don't think any CEO wants to have to take that on, but many have no choice. And so I think there are a whole host of issues like that that have become not moral imperatives, they've become business imperatives. That might be true, but if you, your interests, if you are associated with very active in something like Black Lives Matter movement, is really to make the demands that you feel it's, it's right to make. And it's very broad, it's a sort of umbrella group and the different wings of it. But when I see companies then saying that they support it, I'm not sure where they think their support begins and ends. And I wonder whether in many cases this is, they might be finding themselves effectively signing up to things that they don't want to deliver as well as those they do. I think we can stay at a very high level in thinking about this issue as it relates to humanity. Again, I do appreciate the fact that the level of precision that you're talking about is important to certain people, but I think you're talking at something very, very, very basic, that are we in a situation in this country where Black life is considered less valuable, less important than a white life? The data, again, going back to math has no opinion, proves out the theory. And so as a company, you can say, I support this idea that Black lives do matter and that not be some political statement in the way that you're saying it. It's a point of view about humanity. I'm merely suggesting that some things do then follow from it, which are choices. And those choices can be very difficult or may also require you to stop doing something that you actually don't want to stop doing. I don't know if that's true. Let's think about things like points of view around gay marriage. That issue has changed substantially, not just in America, but in the world. And that was something that had all sorts of corporate implications to it. Just something as basic as benefits plans and making sure the person could get coverage before there was, in some situations, corporations made that decision before the laws went into place for domestic partners. So I don't think that these are necessarily political statements. That was something where I think many CEOs and leaders decided from just humanity and their views about humanity that the definition of a partner came in different ways than perhaps some thought was traditional. So those views, as you say, quite rightly, being on the right side of the argument about what needs to change on a humane footing, they then have consequences. So should investors be, for instance, pulling money from firms that don't do enough to address diversity? This is what I would say. You have to decide if you think that company can be successful. And I have serious doubts about companies that do not have diverse boards being successful in the 21st century over the long term. I think they will step into landmines that they will not know how to navigate, and that could impact shareholder value. I'll give you an example. We used to own a company called Long's Drug Stores in our portfolio many, many years ago. It was the largest drugstore chain in California and Hawaii. They address their annual letter every year, Dear Mrs. Customer. When Mrs. Long passed away, who was one of the people who ran the company and was the only woman on the board, there were no women on the board. We said, 
this is a problem. The woman is the person most likely in the store making the purchase. You address your annual letter, dear Mrs. Customer, and yet you have no gender representation on your board. That's not a good business decision. And so therefore, we had to think about what the long-term prospects for that company would be, given the voices that were absent in that boardroom. What do we think then the debate will end up looking like? You see, there are some very active people in this argument. I'm thinking, for instance, of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who link a quest for socialism with anti-racism here. And they think the capitalism that you represent and what your day job does is kind of part of the problem. And that's what causes racism in the big picture. Do you agree? So first and foremost, to suggest that capitalism is the reason that racism exists in the country, I reject that. I think there are a lot of roots to this evil that exists in our nation. And some of it has to do with needing to have a more fair and equitable system and having capitalism work better for everyone. And some of it has to do with laws. It has to do with policies. There are a whole host of issues where you can see racism embedded in systems. Where does that leave other questions that are bound to arise if you have such a broad portfolio of investments and shares? And I'm thinking particularly about Philip Morris here, the tobacco giant. See, Some people think that that is an example where form of capitalism, investment, asset management, your expertise has a sort of deniable but perhaps threadbare area of what it is doing in terms of public health and that there are moral questions that follow from it. Do they keep you up at night? I wouldn't say keep me up at night, but we debate them inside of our firm vigorously and we have people with different opinions. So our domestic equity managers reject the idea of owning tobacco and they feel that given the societal implications and the potential liability, they don't want to own the names. So they're just taking the moral perspective out of it and looking at it from that perspective. Inside of my same firm, our international global manager, who is a rock star and this fantastic investor, She owns Philip Morris, and she has a point of view that because of what has happened in terms of vaping, etc., she thinks that they will ultimately take people off of regular cigarettes in a way that has a destructive effect on their lungs. We debate this in our own firm, and we have differences of opinion. Now, that's what makes a society work. The majority of revenues there still come from cigarette sales. So what's what's your opinion? What's your personal opinion? My personal opinion. Personal. This has nothing to do with aerial investments, but Melody Hobson, I don't own tobacco in my portfolios. Our family portfolios don't have it. That's my personal opinion. But I give our investment leaders the right to do what they think is best. Could you ever see yourself hardening your position where you felt that you should give stronger advice to disinvest? I mean, you're getting into a whole host of issue of what kind of firm that I want to have at Ariel. I talked about the fact that we were, are very unique in our industry. We're so unique because we're so diverse. We have people who come from all walks of life, who are all corners of the world, who sit together in a way that we do not see in any other firm. And the one thing that comes from that diversity is it can be very, very challenging. You have to actually respect other people's opinions and give them the right to disagree with you, I believe, in order to have an organization where smart and dynamic people want to work. And so we have everything from I might be more progressive in my policies and our vice chairman is 
very, very, very much to the right. And we say that that is what leads to better outcomes, as opposed to us inviting only people like us who think like us, who come from where we come from and who act like us into our world. That is what is wrong with so many investment firms. And that is what is wrong with so many corporate C-suites. You were president of Aerial Investments throughout the financial crisis and the dot-com bubble. So uh, you've, you've been around, really. <laughs> a lot of the multi-season dramas that we seem to be having uh, in the global economy. How does the experience of the last few months compare to those downturns? What's your feeling? I take a long-term view. At Aerial, we have a turtle as a logo. And I have to tell you, despite how challenging and hard this period has been, the volatility has been pretty aggressive. I look out and I have great optimism. When you look at all the things that have happened in our country over hundreds of years, you look at the last century and look at world wars and Vietnam War, and you look at the Great Depression and so many other things that happen, and you see how ultimately the U.S. economy recovered and the stock market did too. You get great confidence in the fact that over the long term, the system does work. There is no 25-year period, not one. You can pick any day of any month of any year and look at 25 years. There is no period where this S&P 500 lost money. And that is what I keep front and center in my mind when I think about the future. Over the long term, the U.S. economy has proven to be resilient. That doesn't mean we don't have setbacks and challenges and really hard times. And so I don't feel a great sense of, of anguish during these kind of periods. Instead, we see opportunity. There will be a vaccine at some point. It will come. We've got so many organizations around the world working on this in, in a way that has never, ever occurred before. And when that vaccine does come, whenever it is, we will stop worrying about the things we worry about today. One portfolio manager, Bill Miller, said something to me that I thought was great. He said, when you get on a plane, you don't think about smallpox or diphtheria. You don't because you've been vaccinated. And the same will be true at some point as it relates to COVID-19. Let's finish on, a, on a, just a few personal thoughts and, and insights from the rest of your life, which is very rich indeed. You're culturally active, you're philanthropic, and I think you very much want to be part of the conversations that are happening in households across the country. And particularly, I'm thinking here, there are some of those that black parents have with their children that white parents don't need to think about. And in many cases, are probably just becoming more aware of, of what that feels like. Did your family talk with you? Did you talk openly about disadvantages that you might face in business, in the wider world, anywhere in your life because of the colour of your skin? And, you know, how do you go about that in a different generation, a different situation? So first and foremost, my mother, I tell the story in my TED talk about being seven years old and coming home from a birthday party. And my mother looked at me and she said, how did they treat you? And I was, as a child, really shocked by the question. I thought she'd ask me about cake or games that we played, etc. And I looked at her with curiosity and she looked me in the eye in a very clear cut manner and said, they won't always treat you well. That started when I was seven. At the same time, my mom made it extraordinarily clear to me, no excuses. You have to step over all of the challenges that are going to be thrown your way, which will be many, based upon your gender and your race. You can still succeed. And she would say to me, Melody, you can be or do anything. And I believed her. Today, I say those same words to my six-year-old child. I say, Everest, you can be or do anything. But I've amended the statement for the time. I tell her, I expect you to believe that's true of anyone and everyone. I was thinking about the other thing you must, of course, talk to you 
daughter about you, your husband, George Lucas, as creator of Star Wars and Indiana Jones. He's role models, is entertainment and the way that it's part of the warp and weft of our thinking, isn't it, you know, from childhood and perhaps more than we like to acknowledge as adults. Where do you look there for role models and have you got any from Star Wars for us? Oh my gosh, there are so many. I mean, I remember once I had a colleague that was leaving my firm and I was just really, really sad about it. And my husband looked at me and he said, Melody, Jedi don't hold on. And he said, they have no attachments for a reason. And he said, it's because of that statement that he made that, you know, anger leads to hate and hate leads to suffering, etc." He said, when you hold on, you suffer. That was like such a profound idea for me. Jedi don't hold on. Melody Hobson, thanks very much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for all of your questions and attention to these very important issues of the day. We'd love to know what you think. If Jedis don't hold on, what should they let go of? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio and let us know who your role models are in America and beyond. For more of our journalism, you can subscribe to us, economist.com slash podcast offer. We'd love to have you along. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.